Things keep changing. I asked, uh, Curtis mentioned that next Sunday is a singing Sunday here at the 8.30, but I asked that you keep us, uh, the elders, myself, in your prayers. Uh, it is like so tricky with the CDC and the World Health Organization and the federal government and the state government and the county government, and they're all putting out different regulations, and we have to make decisions on behalf of vaccinated and unvaccinated members and guests and so there's just a lot of moving parts there and uh, we really appreciate your grace if uh, the the decisions and the timing of the things that uh, that we roll out uh, aren't quite what you think they should be so uh, uh, just bear with us and uh, i think we'll all get there together at some point where we're back in this room and doing what we want to do but uh, there's a, a lot to take into consideration So we are in Acts chapter 11 today, and uh, Curtis, I put the wrong text reference at the top of your page there. Um, it was a busy day. We had a youth event yesterday, and uh, it, it went really well. Uh, we, we had a good time, and it was Friday night and Saturday, and I think we're going to have a couple of uh, devotionals related to that in the month of, of June. Um, I think there's some interest there, and so uh, that went well. This auditorium was completely different. We let the kids make their own socially distanced uh, forts in the auditorium. So uh, if, if you're only five and a half feet from the human, you know, row in front of you, it's because uh, we didn't quite measure it right. But if, it, if something feels off, that's what it is. It's because it was totally disorganized and reconstructed overnight. Okay, so Acts chapter 11, and we're picking up the story of uh, the church, right? And, and last week we talked about Acts 10. If you have your Bible there, you'll see, remember, that we talked about Cornelius and, and how Peter has this vision, and then he goes to visit Cornelius, and he, he says, well, hey, you're a Gentile, but if the Holy Spirit has come, if I get this dream, God's showing me something, and then the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius and his household. And he says, whoa, now I really can't argue with this. And so they're baptized. They become part of the church. And so the first half of chapter 11, I'm, I'm sort of skipping over because there's a lot of repetition. But to say that it's repetition is, is not real complete. What it is is Peter going back to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, because Caesarea, right, is up north. It's up in Galilee. And so he's gone from Joppa that was down on the coast south of Jerusalem up to Caesarea in, in Galilee and now back to Jerusalem. And he gets there, and I don't know if word had got ahead of him or what it was, but there, there, there's, there's a group of people at the door. And they're like, hey, Peter, we've got to talk to you. Okay. Um, I don't know that I've ever had that quite at a church, but, you know, there's the situations like that where something, you know, there's a welcome party for you. And it's like, we've got to solve this. We've got to clarify this. We've got to talk about this. And, uh, and there was a group of people, and they're like, what's going on? We're here. It's funny because the question isn't that we hear that you baptized a Gentile. It's we hear that you ate with Gentiles. Right? Um, We'll get to that other issue. You know, we'll get to the baptism and the faith and the Holy Spirit and everything and down the road and the church and who it's for. Right now, we're concerned about who you ate with. 
And uh, so, so Peter tells the story again. And, and I think what's really important for us to, to appreciate is that this story with uh, Cornelius isn't reflective of what was going on in the lives of everyday people everywhere that they went. The reason Cornelius is so important is because the church in Jerusalem was so important. That's where the apostles were. And so that's where the teaching was. Remember back, all the way back in Acts 2, it's, we're told that the church dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? And so if this is where the apostles are, if this is where their teaching is, it's impacting the whole church throughout that, not just the city, but the region. I mean, this is the first church. You want to know anything about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you go to the horse's mouth. You go to the apostles. And so if you want to bring Gentiles into the church, then the apostles are going to need to sign off on that. And we saw that when they went up to Samaria, right? Because this is how the church, God is rolling the church out. But, so, so it's very significant that the apostles kind of make a decree, make a, a decision about whether or not this group of people have a place in the kingdom of God. But it doesn't mean that Jews as they scattered, Christian Jews as they scattered and everywhere they went, were like just waiting. I think that's why we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, we see there... Philip, who didn't wait to say, oh, let me go. Just you stay here. I'm going to run back to Jerusalem, check with the apostles about whether I can talk with you about Acts chapter 53, and I'll be back in a couple of days, okay? Just, just wait here. Right? He just went ahead and said, no, the Holy Spirit brought me here. I'm going to teach you. Hey, we'll baptize you. You go on your way rejoicing. And he does, maybe doesn't even tell the apostles because he wasn't going to Jerusalem. He, the Holy Spirit then took him somewhere else. And so, stuff is going on. But what happens, the, the reason we have this whole story with Cornelius is because it's the leadership, it's the, the center of the church that is making this really uh, momentous decision about what the church is going to look like going forward. And so when we move on to, chap to the second half of chapter 11, I, I, it's hard to tell whether it's consecutive or if we're like going back in time, you know, exactly how it, how it works. Because it says in verse 19, now those who had been scattered, and that, that looks back to chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8. Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's Lebanon, um, Cyprus, that's Cyprus, and Antioch, that's in Syria. And, and so they've gone to these places. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa, modern-day Libya. Uh, they went to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about Jesus. I feel like I missed something there. I did, back in verse 19. It says, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So I think this is pretty normal. I mean, for us, we might go, oh, how prejudiced. But if you think of how immigration so often works, if you uh, move to a new place, well, just think of this city. 
Are there neighborhoods that you can identify by ethnic group? Greek, Italian, um, Jewish, Hispanic, Ethiopian. You know, and you see the restaurants, you know, there's maybe like a cluster of Eastern African restaurants or something. Um, and, and so when you go into those neighborhoods now, if, if you're from that particular ethnic group, and let's say you're starting a new religion, you're going to start in that neighborhood. You're not going to go across town if you're you know, uh, and from East Africa. You're not going to go across town to the Jewish neighborhood and start telling those people about the East African experience or, or whatever it is. And so it, it's really very natural for them to go to the Jews only. But what's natural isn't always what's right or best. Okay? And, and so I think that's uh, significant here. But th there were certainly, I'm sure, some of them that thought that they couldn't go to other Gentile groups and share the gospel. But there were some. And it's interesting to me, notice where they're from. They're from Cyprus and Cyrene. They're not from Jerusalem. So they're already engaged in Gentile Greco-Roman culture okay, just because of where they come from. They probably do a lot of business with um, Romans and Gen Greeks and Gentiles in, in general. And so they go to Antioch and they just start telling people about the good news of the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, how do you think the church in Jerusalem responds? How have they responded when the Holy Spirit has shown that the kingdom of God is bigger than they thought before? They've been suspicious, right? Surely, surely God doesn't want them in our kingdom. We better go double check that. Let's send Peter and John up to Samaria and see if the Samaritans are really becoming Christians. Are they really? Because we're not sure. Let's see what's going on. And, and they do the same thing here. Even though the Apostle Peter, if, if that chronologically flows, even if the Apostle Peter had come and made this, and they said, yes, we see that the, you know, if, if God wants Gentiles in the church, then uh, who, who are we to stand in the way? But here's the thing. I don't get the sense that the church in Jerusalem was actually adding a lot of Gentiles to that particular congregation. Remember where I said Cornelius was? He didn't become part of the Jerusalem church. He's up in Caesarea. Yeah. So it, it really wasn't something they had to wrestle with. So think of our church. If we said, oh, yes, God wants Chinese people in the church at Lawson Road. We can't put up barriers to Chinese people joining our church. Well, okay, okay, there's no barriers. Doesn't mean there's any Chinese people walk through the door just because we've made a decision. And so the church in Jerusalem has made this decision, but it wasn't really impacting their lives. They weren't actively going out, so far as we know, and recruiting Gentiles. They didn't begin a mission team to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. I heard somebody I respect recently say that the Jews at this time were quite possibly a minority in Jerusalem. 
that there were so many Romans and other people from other parts of the country who had come there that the Jewish population may well have been a minority in their own city. And yet they weren't sharing the good news with those other people there. So when they hear that there's a church all the way up in Syria that has Jews and Gentiles, they're like, we better send somebody to see what's going on. Not only is it because they're, they've got this new group, this new different looking church, but it's growing. Yeah? And, and I think how, wonder how often we've adopted that posture to say, hey, if there's a church growing, they must be doing something wrong. We better be suspicious of them. They've probably got a praise team. They're probably not, their preaching is just fluff. They're probably, there's something that they're doing that, that isn't right. It's just entertainment for them. And, and, and so I wonder if that's what the church of Jerusalem says. They said, look who they're letting in. And they're growing. We better see what's going on. It's like they've already made a decision that it's okay for Gentiles to join the church, but they haven't experienced it. And so they have to go and check it out. And so they send Barnabas this time, not the, not the apostles. Maybe they thought it was important for the apostles to be in Jerusalem. So news of this reached the church in Jerusalem. They send Barnabas to Antioch. And I love this. It was like the Holy Spirit was like, okay, if you're going to, to have this sort of suspicious mindset, if you're going to be skeptical about my work, then, then I'm just going to sort of tweak things so that you select the most encouraging person that you can, the most open-minded person in your, in, in your congregation in Jerusalem, and he's the one that you're going to send to see what I'm doing in Antioch. And so they choose Barnabas. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And I love this. It says that he could walk in and he could see what the Holy Spirit had done. I think there were visual cues here. He didn't have to sit down and have a meeting and hear the backstory of everything. I mean, maybe he did all of that. But he could walk in and he could see that God was at work in the church. And, 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 and I don't know if it means that he walked into a Sunday morning assembly or he walked into someone's home, but he walked into that community and he could see God at work. And, and I love that image. I think it's a really powerful one for us to say, is this the kind of community that we're creating here at Wilson Road? Okay. Now, I think somebody might walk into this room. And in fact, I know they have. And they walk in and they say, I love what God is doing in the the diversity that we see here. But what if they walk into our homes? What if they walk into particular events or ministry that we're doing? How are they welcomed? What do they see? How do they experience God in those settings as well? I think that's our goal, that when people encounter us as a church, that they can walk away and say, surely God is at work in this place. But Barnabas encourages them. And, and he does this, he says, by saying to them, he was glad, he encouraged them. So just his attitude is this. He sees this 
all these Gentiles in the church. He sees these changes. It looks different from it does in Jerusalem. And he says, I love this difference. Right? I wonder how many people in the church of Jerusalem would have walked into Antioch and said, oh, they're not doing that right. <coughs> Look at the way that Gentile's dressed. Okay. Can you believe they're speaking that language in the, in the church building? They should be speaking a language everybody can understand. I wonder how, how many people in Jerusalem would have walked in with a critical eye rather than Barnabas who celebrated this difference that he experienced. He was glad he encouraged them. Here's what he encouraged them, to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And, and I think what we see here is he's able to distinguish between the things that are important and the things that aren't. Now, this probably happens in about the year 40 to 44, somewhere around there. So it's about maybe 10 years, because we're going to meet Saul in just a moment. It's about 10 years since Saul was sent to Tarsus, okay. roughly. There's a 10-year gap in there somewhere. I think the church in Jerusalem had probably developed some traditions already. <laughs> Yeah, and so this church in Antioch not only has um, Gentiles, but because they have Gentiles and different cultures represented, they do things differently. And, and, and I think what Barnabas walks in and says, it says, this doesn't look like Jerusalem. Praise God. <laughs> but, but, you need to make sure that you don't get caught up in all that extra stuff. Just like the church in Jerusalem shouldn't get caught up in all that extra stuff. Here's what you need to encourage. Here's what you need to, to focus on and, and remain steadfast in. Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. That was his encouragement. That's a pretty simple message. Rather than saying, no, you're having the Lord's Supper before or after the sermon, it's the wrong order. Rather than saying, no, you're meeting too early, at the, you know, 9.30 is the appointed time and you're meeting at 8.30, we've got to fix this. He said, y'all do what you want to do. Worship in a way that's pleasing to God. But here's what I want. Keep your hearts focused on the Lord. Don't make any of that other stuff more important. Okay, so then what happens is that Barnabas says, this church is growing. It, it was growing before he got there. It was growing after he got there. It's diverse. It's bringing new challenges that the church in Jerusalem hadn't equipped him for. He says, I don't want to do this on my own. And he remembers this guy from 10 years ago that they had sent to Tarsus. Now, it would be easy to remember him because he's the reason that they're in Antioch. Right, He's the one who persecuted the church that made them scatter, that put a church in Antioch, that brought these Gentiles into their Like, He's the one to blame for all of this. We were told that, right? Right back in, chapter, in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia. That was the time. That was the moment. And if we went back and we read that story, we see that it's Saul that is leading that charge. 
And so Barnabas says, I need to go find Saul. And he goes to Tarsus. It takes him a little while to look around. He finds him. But he does. He says, Saul, how about you come back to Antioch with me? I could use your help. Both Saul and Barnabas are great candidates for this task. Do you remember where the, the people were that came, were from, that came to Antioch and preached to the Gentiles? Remember? I said it just like 10 minutes ago. They were from Cyprus and Cyrene. Okay? And so they're from these Gentile areas. They weren't from Jerusalem. Where is Barnabas from? Anyone know that? I said that like three weeks ago, four weeks ago. <laughs> I said it three times that day. Um, he was from Cyprus. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that God brought somebody from Cyprus to a place where people from Cyprus had started preaching to Gentiles? And, and so he, he, he's, he relates to them. He understands where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing. But he is a Levite, not just a Jew. He's a Levite. He was able to trace his heritage through the tribe. He was a priestly person from a priestly family. And so he brings a great Jewish tradition with him, even though he's from Cyprus. And when he goes and gets Saul, what do we know about Saul? What, what do we know about his sort of citizenship, nationality? He's a Pharisee, right? He's a Jew, he's a Pharisee, he trained under Gamaliel. Where's he from? Tarsus. What do we know about his connection with Rome? He's a Roman citizen. He's one of the very privileged families to be not actually of Roman ethnicity, but to be a Roman citizen. And so Saul is, again, a, a really good person to recruit for the church in Antioch. Because he's got all the Jewish credentials of having trained under Gamaliel, of being a Pharisee, and he's also a Roman citizen, which gives you a lot of respect when you're working with Gentiles. And so perhaps that's another reason that Barnabas went to get him. But Tarsus, by the way, is up in Turkey. And so Barnabas had to travel for about a week to go reach Tarsus, and then bring Saul back. And so I think it's important to recognize here Barnabas, how unselfish he is. He doesn't say, "I'm look, the church is growing, and it was growing before I got here. I got here, and hey, we're growing more. Like, I'm going to become an apostle before long. Right? I'm on this career track, and uh, they're going to give me a bigger assignment. I'm going to become a bishop over Antioch or something. And uh, instead he says, no, I'm going to go get Saul because I need help. But I, I wonder if it's not just that he needs help, but he says, I think this is an opportunity for Saul. And so Barnabas recognizes that this is going to be good for Saul as Saul is integrated back into kind of the mainstream part of the church, closer to Jerusalem, as he's... It's going to be good for Barnabas because he's not doing all the work himself. He's, he's got an ally, somebody that he's already stood up for and defended, and, and there's a relationship there. 
And it's going to be good for the church because Saul brings a lot of knowledge and teaching and experience as he can come as well as an encounter with what a conversion story. You know, what a, what a story Saul has to tell. And we see it told over and over again in the book of Acts. So it's good for Saul, good for Barnabas, good for the church. And I think there's, we, again, something here that we can take from this. Because I, I think many of us have been in the church for more than a minute. And it's so easy for us to do things ourselves. For us to teach a Bible class. Okay? If I said, can you teach a Bible class on 10 minutes notice? There's some of us that can say, yeah, I can do that. If, if there's, hey, we need a light bulb change. Some of us know exactly where the light bulbs are. We could get that done in 10 minutes. Ladders, tools for doing it, reaching behind them. There's all sorts of things around the church. Who do I talk to to get this done? Who do I talk to about that? And some of us know it and can direct them and do all that because we've been here, as I said, more than a minute. But if we're going to be like Barnabas, if we're going to learn from him, we're going to recognize that shouldn't always be us doing it. That it's good if we bring someone else in to work alongside us. It's good for that individual to learn what we know. It's good for us because it actually allows us to do something else. And it's good for the church because now there are two people that can do that task. And if it's a younger person, it's, it's particularly good for the church because it means there'll be somebody to do it when I can't do it anymore. And so Barnabas, I think, is demonstrating to, to those of us that just have this sense of urgency that like, hey, if something needs to be done, I'm just going to get it done. Like I'll do it more efficiently, I'll do it more quickly, I don't have to bother anyone, I don't have to communicate, you know, I don't have to, like, it's just done, okay, we can move on. Barnabas says, no, for the church to grow, the leadership has to grow. The, 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 the size of the group of people that can do things and are willing to do things and are recruited to do things, that needs to grow. When the top grows, the bottom will grow. And so I think there's this important principle here that Barnabas understood and is putting into place. But in time, although Barnabas is the leader at this point, the mentor, the one that is investing his reputation in Saul, like even, I'm sure Antioch was, still wasn't you know, super confident that Saul was the right person when they brought him back. Barnabas says, I'm just going to get somebody to come and be our, my co-worker with me. He comes back with Saul. And they're like, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, he put my cousin in prison. Right? He, he killed my, co- my wife's cousin. Um, in Jerusalem. And and so Barnabas is putting his reputation on the line. And he was willing to do that, to take a risk, because it was what was going to be best. And in time, he was willing to sort of step aside and give Paul the the spotlight. As Paul, Saul became the the main teacher. Um, But for now, they're a team. They teach together. They lead the church there together. 
for a year. And so we see this bridge building happening amongst individuals, whether it be bridge building of Jews sharing the gospel with Gentiles, whether it be Barnabas you know, going out and, and bridge building to Saul and bringing him back. We see it happening with individuals, but we also see it happening between congregations. And that's this last section. Uh, during that time, in verse 27, this, during this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, at each, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, how would you feel if the mother church sends somebody up to sort of check you out and see what's going on? You feel like real warm and cuddly towards them? Oh, look at them, they're just so... Or do you get defensive? You sort of go, hey, who are they? Who are they? Don't they know about congregational autonomy? Um, we're, we're doing good here. Why'd they have to send Barnabas? Who do they think they are? But when they hear that there's a famine coming, they could easily say, well, we need to just collect our resources. We need to store up because we don't know how long this is going to be. We don't know how bad this is going to be, how this is going to impact us. Um, but their first response, and I don't know, it's hard to really know why they did this, but their first response is, well, we need to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Maybe they just knew the church were there. There were a lot of people in poverty. We, we know that previously they've sold possessions given to those who are widows and uh, and poor people. Maybe it was just a poorer congregation. But whatever the reason, their first impulse is to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Now this is uh, unique in that culture. You see, if you worshipped a particular god, okay, if you worshipped Jupiter and you lived in Ephesus, I don't know if people in Ephesus worshipped Jupiter, but let's say they did. And you discover that someone in Alexandria, down in Egypt, or, you know, is having a hard time. But they also worship Jupiter. There was no really familial connection amongst the worshippers of Jupiter. You worship Jupiter because it was good for you. Because it made your life better. You may be invested in your village, that you think your village should all worship Jupiter because if we don't, Jupiter is going to punish us and it will be bad for us. But we don't care what's going on in Alexandria. In fact, we kind of expect that Alexandria may have a completely different god altogether. And if there happens to be a Jupiter worshiper there, if he's smart, he should probably switch to whatever their god is. Because the idea of a localized god was, was really common. And so there was no connection among Jupiter worshippers or Diana worshippers or whatever. It was all invested in that location. And so that changes. Because now the church 
is a kingdom. Wherever the church is, and whoever the church is, they're united. They're the body of Christ. And, and so when you think of what Paul, in his letters, there's so many descriptions. The church is a building. The church is a body. The church is, is a... Um, oh, now I've got a mind blank. But, but so many different things that he says that, that portray this idea of unity. What he's saying there is something that is very strange if you're a pagan worshiper. But we see it from the beginning. Because the church in Antioch, they say, hey, there's going to be a famine, there's going to be hardship, let's send money to Jerusalem. And they pass the hat. And they then, they get Paul and ba uh, Saul and Barnabas, because they've become a team. And off they go. They send their two primary teachers, maybe because Barnabas has a connection to Jerusalem. And they send them down with the, the check to to make that delivery. And so I think if there's key words to take from this, like there's, there's different lessons at different points, we're going to say, what, what's this image of a church? I think that the church in Antioch is really the healthiest congregation that we encounter in the New Testament. <laughs> and so it's interesting that you know, the letters that, that we have in the New Testament, they're written to churches that have problems. We're not told of any problems in Antioch. In fact, they seem to be doing great things that even the church in Jerusalem isn't. And yet we're not told a whole lot about it. It's like, why aren't we told what it looks like to be a really good church? Instead, we spend all this portion of the New Testament finding about churches that have problems. I'm going to guess it's because most churches have churches that are churches that have problems. And so sometimes we expect every church, our church, and our, all of our church experiences to be like Antioch. But the truth is, we're going to have problems. We're going to run into struggles. The church isn't going to do what we think it should do or say what we should say or sing the songs we think they should sing. People aren't always going to treat us the way we think they should treat us. And so we need that big portion of the New Testament saying, here's how you should treat one another. Because it's not automatic. And Antioch is a rarity. But we can still learn from Antioch. We can aspire to be a congregation like that. A, a church that is moved by the Spirit, that is growing, that is sharing the good news with people around them regardless of who they are, that cares about other churches, that is generous towards them, that is gracious towards someone like Saul, that is mission-minded as later they're going to send Paul and uh, Saul and Barnabas out to, to spread the gospel. They're just doing a whole lot of really good stuff and we can aspire to be like that. At the same time, we accept the reality that more often than not, our church experience is going to be like Corinth. God was at work in Corinth, just as he was in Antioch. So I think the words for us to take home, just to, to sort of give us a, an idea of what's going on here, are words like friendship that's established between Saul and Barnabas. Encouragement. Encouragement to focus on Christ. And discipleship, as we see Barnabas investing in in Saul.
But there's also this element of bridge building, reaching out to those different, whether it be the Jewish church in Jerusalem, whether it be the Gentiles in Antioch, or the people we're a little suspicious of, like Saul. This healthy church is building bridges in all of these areas to people that maybe aren't sure that they really belong in that congregation. And the church says, by the Holy Spirit, it says, yes, there's a place for you in God's kingdom, and we want to encourage and support that. I pray that's who we aspire to be. And for us to be that as a church, we need to be that way as individuals. I pray that the Holy Spirit may be at work in your life so that we, together, can be a church like Antioch.